Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. We opened this text for the first time last week under the title, God's Final Call. Because that, in essence, is what these verses represent. This is God's final call to submit to Him and be saved. Throughout the book of Revelation, one of the many thematic threads is the fact that even in the last judgment, God continues to send witnesses into the world to preach the gospel and to call men and women and boys and girls to be saved, just like he's doing now. He is doing it even in the context of judgment. We see it in Revelation in the testimony of the martyrs. In, uh, we see it in the 144,000 that are called and in the prophecy of the two witnesses. And specifically, those, those prophets are called to witness to the nation of Israel. It's amazing, really, that God has a heart of compassion even in this context. Even though he has to judge sin. Even though the day of his wrath must come. Even in the context of unfolding cataclysmic, terrible things that are happening upon the earth, God is still in the midst of that calling people to himself to repent. You would think they would. You would think they would say, this cannot be something that's just happening because of global warming. God is judging us and they would rush to him. But Revelation bears out the idea that people will shake their fist at God and hate him in spite of these judgments that are coming. And in this text, God actually sends angelic messengers to message the message of the gospel. Three angels to evangelize with the evangel, the good news, as we saw last week. We hear from the first angel, starting in verse 6 of John 14. John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And in verse 9, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. These are three messages that are unmistakably given to a sinful world that is about to experience the judgment of God on a profound level, a horrifying level, unknown 
in human history. But to this, John adds a fourth call that is directed by the Lord to faithful followers of Jesus Christ. He writes in verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. Now, as I said last week, God's merciful final invitation to turn to him and be saved is marked by four essential messages that we see in this text. And they not only urge people to turn to God and be saved, they're also to the hearts of people who already belong to God. And they also teach us something about our own gospel presentation. So what are these four essential messages? Well, the first that we covered last week that I'll do just a really brief review of this morning is a royal proclamation. Because in the angel's cry, we notice that the verbs calling people to God are fear God, glorify him, and worship him. These are the kinds of imperatives that you would use if you were to call somebody to bow before a great king. And indeed, God is king. He's king over all the earth. He's, he's made that known already in Revelation as he has systematically taken apart some of his creation, showing that he is uh, the sovereign ruler over all. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So this gospel message is not on the surface, a specific message, Christ died for you, so turn to him for forgiveness and receive the gift of salvation. This this is what John calls an eternal gospel. The gospel that has been preached since the beginning of time. Turn to God. Worship him. The reason that Jesus Christ came to earth to die for us is the very reason that humanity left to ourselves never would fear and glorify and worship God, the creator alone, like we should. The only reason, in fact, that we here today, if you are a believer in Christ, worship the God of heaven is because of what Jesus Christ did to change you, to transform you into a worshiper of the one true God when you embraced his salvation by faith. But we noticed last week that this gospel is not just a polite invitation. It's not a call to check God out or to think about it. It is a call to look to God and be saved before it is too late. It's an urgent call, a final call. It is the literal final call. The angel is crying, fear God and give him glory because the very hour of his judgment has come, which means it's coming very, very soon after this cry. This teaches us about our own witness. If we were walking along in a neighborhood and saw a house going up in flames and knew the people were still inside and unaware of the danger, we probably wouldn't simply call out, hey, you know, just wanted you to know Your house is on fire if you'd like to get out. But if not, that's okay. I mean, you do you. You know, I just wanted to let you know. That's not the way we would be. We would rush in and yell at the top of our lungs. Get out. Don't you realize the house is on fire? And we wouldn't care how they felt about it. We would just want to help them rescue their lives. And yet, in many ways, we have become nonchalant 
in our approach to gospel witness. And in some cases, perhaps it is because the church has become too much like the world that is going to judgment. And we don't think about this like we should. A.W. Tozer, in the middle of the 20th century, saw this kind of thing happening. This is getting close to about 80 to 90 years ago. He saw this sort of thing happening in his own denomination. He noticed a less aggressive, less invasive attitude toward the proclamation of the gospel, and he was grieved by it. And he wrote, The church has lost her testimony. She has no longer anything to say to the world. Her once robust shout of assurance has faded away into an apologetic whisper. She who one time went out to declare now goes out to inquire. Her dogmatic declaration has become a respectful suggestion, a word of religious advice given with the understanding that it is after all only an opinion and not meant to sound bigoted. Sounds very familiar to what we hear today. But pure Christianity, he says, instead of being shaped by its culture, actually stands in sharp opposition to it. That's why when we do church ministry, you have to be very careful that we're not just giving people outside of the community of faith something that makes them comfortable within the community of faith. We want you know, Love bridges that gap. But we're trying to show them we have something that they don't have, not just another version of something they already have, which means there needs to be a unique and distinct culture in the church that is completely different from the world. That doesn't mean we're against people. It means we love them and we're willing to say gently when needed, but urgently the world is going to judgment. Are you on the right side of that judgment? Do you know the judge is he your savior? Our, our witness is a royal proclamation. Come to Jesus, bow before him as king of creation. Turn to him before it is too late. Now, this morning, we're going to move on and recover the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the essential messages because there are three more. And here's where we, we, we pick up from last week. If uh, the, the first message is a royal proclamation, then the second is a critical affirmation. Judgment is coming. And he says in verse 8, another angel, a second, followed, uh, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, what does this mean? Well, before we look at the force of this angelic message, we have to understand why the angel is crying out about the fall of Babylon the Great. As if Babylon is still a nation. It's not. The empire of Babylon had already been judged by God hundreds of years prior to this, never to rise again. In fact, the same cry of judgment, this is very interesting, the same cry of judgment came from the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 21, verse 9. Look at this verse. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. This is one of the many prophecies, many prophecies that Isaiah makes concerning the final destruction of of Babylon. If you do your Bible reading through the year and you read through those prophecies, Babylon comes up a lot. And Isaiah says back in Isaiah 13, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pop of, uh, pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And 
will never be inhabited or lived in for generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. Their houses will be full of howling creatures. And it continues. And Jeremiah, who prophesied during the days when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, said much the same things as Isaiah. He said, Babylon will be a perpetual waste. Babylon was finished when the Persians came to power and utterly destroyed the great city of Babylon and her empire, and it is never coming back. So, how can this prophecy be about Babylon? Well, this prophecy is not about Babylon, the empire, or the civilization. The prophecy is about a system of government or rulership that acts as Babylon once acted against the people of God. A Babylonian-like empire. Think about it. What was Babylon in the Old Testament? Babylon was an ungodly world power that caused all the earth to worship her kings as gods. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's image that he set up around the realm and commanded bow or burn the people of God who were the subject of that empire were pressured into going along with it. They were influenced by it. Some of them remained faithful, right? Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what did the others do? We, we never told in Daniel what the others did. Maybe some of them stood as well. Maybe some of them bowed to it. Maybe they pretended to go along with it. They knew they should not worship the king. They could only worship the God of heaven. But when the music sounded, you know, maybe they accidentally dropped a contact or something and they bent over, you know, to, to look for that just to make sure. I mean, wouldn't you do something like that too if you were a father who wanted to protect your family knowing that if you did not bow, your wife and your children would be executed along with you? Wouldn't that be tempting to at least fake obedience and fake worship? So there was this pressure to live under and go along with a system of government and cultural influence that was in direct opposition to fearing and glorifying and worshiping the true king of the world. It was forced upon them. In Daniel 1, we read of the cultural pressure Daniel and his friends faced in violating their own Jewish law by participating in the king's table. And in Daniel 3, as I said, they were told to worship the king as a god or be thrown into the fiery furnace. Or Daniel 6, once Persia took over, Daniel was to pray to the king or be thrown in the lion's den. And in Daniel's chapters, Daniel 7 through 12, Daniel, living under a wicked government, prays and prays to the Lord. Some of the most fascinating prophecy in all the Old Testament. He prays to the Lord, asking him, when are you going to vindicate your people? When are you going to have us stop living under the regime of these wicked nations who oppose the God of heaven. And God responds to Daniel in Daniel 7-12 through 12 by pointing him to the end-time vindication of God and His people that is the subject of the very book of Revelation that we picked up. So Babylon, in the minds of God's people, became a symbol for an empire that would enslave them and try to control them and lead them away from following the living and true God. So, at the end of 1 Peter 5, when Peter is giving his final greeting, he writes these words. Did you, you recognize this in reading 1 Peter and wonder why does he use this term? 
he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. In other words, Peter is writing from Rome. He is saying the church at Rome sends you greetings. She is the church because she is the one who is chosen and writing from Rome because he refers to Rome as Babylon to call attention to the fact that the church in Rome faces the same kind of spiritual oppression from the government and culture that God's people faced in Babylon. If you read the Jewish literature at the time, you'd see a lot of other examples. I can show you this morning of how the Jewish people would refer to Rome as Babylon. It was the nickname because in their history, that was what Babylon did to them. The Roman Empire demanded worship as gods. The culture of the empire was intensely immoral. Christians were persecuted and sometimes tortured and executed by the Roman government. So everyone understood the illusion. At least those Jewish believers like Peter, whose ancestors had been taken into captivity by Babylon, and after Peter's own execution under Nero's reign, Rome even destroyed the Jewish temple just like Babylon had done in the 6th century. And so Babylon was their name for any destroying, oppressive, ungodly culture. So in this prophecy, in Revelation, who is Babylon? Babylon is any wicked and idolatrous government who exalts itself over the worship of God and seeks to oppress and subvert the people of God. That's a Babylon regime. We've already seen Babylon in the pages of this prophecy, especially in chapter 13. I feel bad in a way that there's been so much time gap, you know, a few months between when we studied uh, Revelation 13, because there's a lot of keys to what we're reading here in in that prophecy in chapter 13, if you take a a little bit of a read uh, to go back there. But Babylon is the governance of the world that is ruled over by Satan, which it describes in chapter 13, who sets up the beast who rises out of the sea and the false prophet that comes from the earth. And and Satan acting like the father and the beast like the son and the false prophet like the spirit who points to the others and gives them glory. It's this unholy trinity. And these cause the world to worship them and they persecute the saints of God and kill them. They create a system of commerce where you cannot buy or sell unless you have that mark of the beast. Unless you have bowed to the beast and accepted his rule. So the world has been presented a choice. Follow God or follow the beast who derives his power from the devil. The angel describes Babylon as she who made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That, that term sexual immorality is the ESV way of translating the, the Greek word porneia, which, which we have several words in our English language from that word porneia. And certainly the world will be marked by a level of rampant immorality and sexual perversion in those days. A passionate immorality. That shouldn't surprise us. In fact, there are places we can go in the world right now where the moral abandonment will shock us. But what the passionate immorality likely refers to here is the fact that the governments of the world and the people of them intimately associate with the Babylon of the day. They will go after her hard. 
They will be wooed by the beast and the false prophet because they, per- they crave the protection. They crave the financial security that goes with receiving the mark of the beast. And besides that, as we saw in chapter 13, those who refuse the mark are considered traitors of that government and they are hunted and imprisoned or killed. So people fear this unholy trinity and give them glory. They fawn over them. And give their heart to them. And, and we read chapter 13. Oh, who is like the beast? Especially after he see, receives a mortal wound. And then looks like he comes back from the dead. Of course, never, nobody's ever done that before. Wow. Look at him. And they go after him. Babylon, it says, made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her pornea. And there are two full chapters in this prophecy that we're going to come to, chapters 17 and 18. As you know, if you're familiar with Revelation, they describe in detail the judgment of Babylon, both the religious part of of this kingdom and the, the financial part of this kingdom. And think about our world today. It is all about money. It is all about buying and selling. And we're going to see the destruction of those cultures in 17 and 18. And I think we'll see some of our own culture that we see right now in those chapters. And we'll come to those eventually. But here, the angel is crying out the warning that Babylon, the government that the people of the world have given themselves over to, it is about to fall. And notice this, so certain and ominous is this great destruction of Babylon that the named angel announces the judgment as if it has already happened. Babylon hasn't fallen right now. This is a proclamation that is going to. But the angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's not just the English translation. In the Greek version, it's it's the same uh, uh, kind of verb. It's something that looks at the whole action as if it's already happened. So there is a flow of ideas here. The first angel cries out with an eternal gospel. Turn to God. Fear him. Give him glory. Worship him. While the second angel affirms by this ominous cry, fallen, fallen, that the judgment of God is about to come on the whole system you are worshiping and giving your heart to. It is not going to last. It will be destroyed. What you have placed your faith in, what you are holding on to, the lesser gods, they are about to burn up. It's a critical affirmation. And an affirmation like this should also be a part of our gospel proclamation. God is not only proclaiming that he will save us if we turn to him, but he is also affirming that anything else we cling to but him will mean nothing. In the end, people need to distinguish the fact that when they come to Christ, they are not simply adding Jesus to everything they already have and are already worshiping, thinking that if I add him to the bag of stuff, he will make everything better. That's not what embracing Jesus looks like. Rather, they are embracing Christ for salvation by abandoning everything else that they are clinging to. And they had given their lives to, that they thought brought meaning and purpose and fulfillment and clinging only to Christ. This is the critical affirmation that ought to be a part of our gospel witness. Turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ, but realize everything else you're clinging to is going to be gone. Now there's a third terrible, essential message, and I'm entitling it a fatal admonition. 
a fatal admonition, fatal especially if it is not heeded. If you do not turn to God, you will be condemned. To admonish someone is to warn them, to plead with them. You are heading down a wrong way. And he says, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand. And, and in other words, they've, they've given themselves over to the system. It's not like they accidentally took this mark or, or somebody forced it upon, him, upon them, but they, they have bought in. They have, they have expressed their faith and trust and worship in the wrong God. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Just a, a terrible and striking way to express the wrath of God. It should move us that God is going to pour this much wrath out on the world. We haven't even seen anything yet as we, as we keep reading through Revelation. And it says, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Who are those who are judged in these verses? They are those who worship the beast and its image and received that mark. That's in verse 9. And then notice in verse 11, he repeats that information. They are referred to as these worshipers of the beast and its image, and they received his mark. And, and I know I'm not saying much about the mark of the beast and so forth. I covered that in, in some detail when we went to chapter 13. And if you want to hear those sermons, you can still get them online, I'm pretty sure. Uh, they're there. So uh, let us know about that, and, and you, can, you can listen to them and, and catch up with some of this. But the thing is, they have made their decision to reject God and embrace the messengers of Satan. What happens to them? It says, those who drank the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality in verse 8, they have another drink that they're going to drink. They are also going to drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. You see, to drink from the cup is a biblical picture of completely immersing yourself into someone or something, completely identifying with it. It's a fitting image because when we consume liquid, it becomes a part of us. It absorbs into our bodies and helps our bodies perform various functions that if it didn't perform those functions, we would die. Most of our blood is, is water. We're about 70% water, they say. We need water. And so when we drink liquid, it helps keep our body healthy. It becomes part of us. So it is a great image. And we find this image of drinking the cup in the Gospels. For example, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells his disciples that he must be delivered up to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then the mother of James and John come, comes along and they ask, she asks that, that her boys would be allowed to have thrones placed on either side of Jesus' throne when Jesus establishes his kingdom. And Jesus says to James and John, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? In other words, are you able to fully take within yourselves the same thing I am going through to be able to make this kingdom possible and come to my throne? And then Jesus himself on the night before his crucifixion 
uh, said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, Father, if there is any way that I do not have to immerse myself in this agony, if there is any way that I do not have to drink the wrath of God upon sin. And of course, he bowed to the Father's will, as he always did. We also see this imagery in 1 Corinthians. This is the letter where Paul teaches about the Lord's table. We read this portion every time we come to the Lord's table here at Gateway. When we raise the cup and drink from it, what are we doing? We are fully uh, fully immersing ourselves, identifying ourselves with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But earlier in the letter, Paul tells the Corinthians, look, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And he's talking about the table. Don't come into the assembly and take the cup and drink it and immerse yourself in Christ when you've been immersed in the world demonic activity because he's talking to them specifically here about uh, food offered to idols and that there's a demon behind that idol that you're actually participating in. He says, don't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And we could put it this way. You, you, you can't immerse yourself in the world and then just pretend to immerse yourself in Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. Jesus himself said, no person can serve two masters. So those who reject the Lord in the tribulation period will do so by drinking from the cup of the wicked, immoral government system, embracing and becoming one with the rulers of that system. They aren't tricked into it. They choose to participate. And that is why this angel is warning the world, do not choose the beast. Do not worship him. Do not drink from that cup. Because you will also find yourselves draining another cup that is far worse. The cup of God's wrath upon sin. Full strength. And that full strength wrath of God is not a temporal, painful punishment ending in separation from this earth. This is eternal judgment. The angel admonishes in verses 10 and 11, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. To torment is to inflict someone with continual suffering. And here the suffering refers to the lake of fire, I believe, that's described in Revelation 20. It seems closest to that description in, in chapter 20. So he's looking at the final judgment, which was actually prepared for the devil and his angels, not for human beings. Only those human beings go in there who follow the devil and his angels. This fire is mixed with sulfur, you notice which older translations refer to brimstone. That's where we get the idea of fire and brimstone. Brimstone is uh, a word that actually means burning stone. It refers to a kind of sulfuric stone that you would find like in volcanoes that glow with intense heat and give off this choking, terrible smell. It means a continual burning, continual, unrelenting, unimaginable pain. And the angel's cry does not leave us in doubt as to the duration of the judgment. Notice he says three times that this will not end. He says the smoke of their torment goes up forever. They have no rest. And that this goes on day and night. There is no day and night in eternity. It's an expression that means it will never stop. This is not an enjoyable subject 
especially in advanced Western cultures like the United States. I mean, people don't believe this kind of thing anymore. This is medieval. This is the kind of things old-fashioned evangelists use to scare people into getting religion. It's offensive to enlightened, woke people like we have in our culture. In fact, if you insist that this is true today, there are many who will accuse you of hate crimes. There's been legislation introduced for years to try to get preachers to stop preaching on certain sins and certain subjects from the Bible, that they could, they could be fined or arrested for doing so. Nothing has ever gone through yet. But it will keep getting tried. And who knows what will eventually happen. Contemporary theologians have felt this pressure. For many years they felt it. The pressure to rethink their view on eternal punishment. That's not coming because they're studying the scripture and saying, oh, you know, I think we've misunderstood this. No, it's pressure from the culture. And to get in step with it. And to, and to have respect among critical theologians or critical historians. You can find several books today in which theologians explain that we've completely misunderstood the Bible's teaching on hell and the lake of fire. There's really no such thing. That's just the way they conceived of something in that time period. All that the Bible says about the lake of fire, all that Jesus said to warn us against hell, they explain it all away. And there are ministers and churches, many of them in upstate South Carolina, in the Greenville area, who no longer espouse belief in such things like an eternal place of torment called hell. I know this personally. And my reaction is twofold. On the one hand, I sympathize, and I think you do too, with those who, who want to reread the text so that it doesn't really say there's a literal lake of fire. I mean, I don't like the idea either. It's, it's, it's horrifying to me. But on the other hand, if this is what the Bible says, we are not honoring God and we're not really loving people if we try to cover up the truth. In fact, it's obviously just and righteous that people will suffer in the lake of fire. Even though we can't comprehend that, perhaps, it is just and righteous. I want you to notice that it says they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. While we shy away from the notion of eternal suffering and we're not quick to mention it, the spotless Lamb of God who died for sin along with the angels will stand and gaze upon those who are suffering knowing that it is right, knowing that in, they, they know that it will bring glory to God. It's not like people are cast into the lake of fire and the Lord looks the other way as if He's done something wrong. It's not a secret He's trying to hide. He is fully knowledgeable about it and does it on purpose because God the Father has given the right for him to judge. And someday when we are with the Lord in glory, our salvation complete, perhaps then we'll be able to better understand God's holy will and affirm that will with the Lord in his justice. But until then, it is hard for us to comprehend texts like this. Keep in mind, however, that those who are suffering in the lake of fire in the book of Revelation are the same people who have killed the saints and rejoiced over their deaths and have given themselves over to the wickedness of the beast and the false prophet and stand against the Lord and reject his call. And when they see the judgment coming upon them, they don't say, wait, we were wrong. We trust you now. No, rather, they call for the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And they shake their fist at God. They do not turn to him. They will not turn. 
They hear the angelic messenger and turn away and refuse to repent. And I pray, it's a good thing to think, and, and just to park here for a second, I pray that none of you are actually rejecting the call to salvation, but that you have truly trusted in the death of Christ for your sins and have, in the words of John the Baptist, fled from the wrath to come. Some people say, well, you know, we need to, we need to trust Christ because we love him, not because we're afraid of going to hell. I think being afraid of God's wrath is a very good reason to trust the Lord. Now, once you've come to the Lord for salvation, that's not the only reason you, you find that you love him and that he is beautiful and you want to grow in him. But a lot of people have come to Christ because they heard the story about hell and they believed it. And they said, I do not want, why would I suffer that? I don't want to do what, 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 what I have, what I do to be able to suffer that. I must be rejecting something that God has given me and they've turned to Christ because of that reason. I think that's a great reason to turn to Christ. This is a fatal admonition in the sense that it is absolutely essential that you listen to it and believe it and turn to God. If you do not, it will mean your eternal death. And as difficult as it is to proclaim in a culture of safe spaces, we need to warn people. The God who loves the world yet cannot overlook the sin of the world and be a just and righteous God And divine eternal judgment is coming for anyone who rejects the gift of God's Son who God Himself has provided as a way of escape. So, now we see this angelic gospel message in its entirety. The first angel announces a royal proclamation to worship God who created all things. The second angel offers a critical affirmation that all who are trusting in and holding on to other things in the world will be that those things will be destroyed anyway. And the third angel brings the truth down hard with this final fatal admonition. Turn now or you will suffer the wrath of God forever. And these essential messages should be a part of our gospel proclamation. Not only the urgent call to come to God through finding forgiveness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the truth that this world will be judged and people who are in personal danger of suffering forever in the lake of fire if they do not heed the call, that is a real thing in Scripture. Hell is for real. Now, there's one more part of this text that actually presents a fourth essential message, and it stands in light of the truth of the other messages. But it is different in kind from the other three because it specifically is addressed to believers, those who obeyed the call of God and have turned to Jesus Christ and in the, in the tribulation period, those who have not given in to the beast or those who hear the angelic cry and turn to God. But there's also com- tremendous application for us today who are waiting for God to come and judge. And this final message I call a spiritual consolation, which can be summarized with the call endure to the end. Verse 12 of our text says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. It's striking, I think, that this call for endurance appears at this place in the prophecy. And I'll tell you why. We saw the same call in the previous chapter, chapter 13, where the beast is called forth by Satan and has the power to make war on the saints of God and conquer them. 
And, and in that context, where we're reading of the, that wicked government people are suffering under and being killed and being persecuted, in, in chapter 13, we read this in verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is taken cap- to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. God is telling them, look, some of you are going to be taken captive. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. God is saying, look, some of you are going to die. I'm not going to lie to you. That's going to happen to you. And then he says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Very similar to what we just read in chapter 14. And we can understand this reason for the call and for endurance in chapter 13. Because some of the believers are going into captivity and some of them were going to be killed. But here in chapter 14, if I can go back now, the call appears again in this context of a gospel proclamation and a warning to those who continue to follow the beast. So why does the call for endurance reappear at this juncture? And I think there are at least three reasons. First, the gospel proclamation of these three angels does not end the suffering of believers. Just because we're proclaiming the gospel doesn't mean the suffering ends. In fact, the gospel proclamation is a call to turn from following the rule of Satan and imitate the faith of the believers who are there, who are worshiping God. Second, we do not know how long God is giving the wicked of the world to respond to this final call. When God is slow to anger, when he is merciful to sinners, it usually means that more time is passing before the vindication of his people. And we should think about that the next time we feel that we are being treated unjustly by unbelievers or we are wondering why God doesn't step in and just let them all have it. We are called to endure as long as God's mercy endures. And in the meantime, we should be praying for the salvation of those who persecute us, just like Jesus told us to in Matthew 5.44. Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Third, there is a call for the saints to endure, likely because they are about to experience, many of them, the same impact on the planet that unbelievers are going to experience when the Lord unleashes the last of the judgments in chapter 16, including the sea and fresh water turning to blood, the scorching heat of the sun, palpable darkness of the earth, cataclysmic lightning and thunder, and an earthquake that literally rocks the globe. Now, now, when we read chapter 16, we'll find out God shields his people from some of those judgments, but not all of them. And there will be a lot that Christians live through and suffer before the actual return of Christ. And this calls for endurance. So there's another voice from heaven. Notice, a voice from heaven. It's not another angel. I think it's the voice of the Lord himself. And the voice says, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then blessed indeed, says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Of course, to die in the Lord means that you die as a believer. It means you remain faithful to the Lord to the very end of your life, no matter what. In fact, if you remember, that is the definition of the conqueror in Revelation And the Lord has all these promises to the conquerors in chapters 2 and 3. A conqueror is not a person whom Satan is unable to kill. 
A conqueror is a person who refuses to abandon his faith in Christ no matter what Satan does to him, no matter what the believer must suffer. Because their ultimate hope is in Christ alone and the conquerors stand in glory with Christ. Nothing else can touch them and the devil and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. That's what it means to conquer in Revelation. That little phrase might stand out to you from now on. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Well, what does that mean? Well, it can't mean that those who die in the Lord at the end of times are blessed and those who die in the Lord right now are not blessed. In fact, the voice from heaven, the Lord himself, is probably telling all of us, you and me here today, and and believers starting in John's time, whether they're living in the tribulation, whether they're in John's time, whether they're today, the voice of the Lord is telling us that we will be blessed by God if we remain faithful to the Lord no matter what, if we will remain, remain faithful to him. Even if we die for him, we will be blessed. And what is remarkable is that the Holy Spirit chimes in to second the motion. This indeed is a spiritual consolation. The Lord is encouraging all of his people from John's time until now to endure. So what does it mean to endure? Well, look at the clues right here in the text. Look at verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Notice, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. To endure is first to keep the commandments of God. In other words, we will continue to obey God. It's as simple as that. To genuinely fear and glorify and worship our Creator, not only with our words, but with our actions, this week, this day, and what we're doing. Not allowing the godless culture that we live in to persuade us to join them, but to adopt our worldview and our faith and our idea of what it means to live in this world from the Scripture and from what it means to follow our Lord faithfully. To endure is second, he says, to keep one's faith in Jesus. In other words, to remain loyal to Christ. There's an idea of loyalty here. To be that person who says, I don't care what anybody else is doing. I don't care if it's unpopular. I don't care if it seems extra to people, even to other believers. I don't care what's at risk. I'm going to follow the Lord visibly and actively with my life and seek his blessing, his blessing and approval. And I am never going to stop. I'll tell you what, we need Christians in the world today who are still willing to say that, that they don't care what anybody else is doing. We, we get so caught up in what people think about us And and even our Christianity, we sort of check it a little bit because we don't want to be too spiritual, right? We need to get rid of that idea and just say it only matters what the Lord uh, says because guess what? We are going to judgment. This earth is going to be judged. And there needs to be a stark difference between the children of light and the children of darkness. And the Holy Spirit himself says that when you leave this world, it will be a blessed transition, that it will be like a well-deserved rest from labor, Your work is finished. Your deeds will follow you. That means what you've done for the Lord, your obedience and faithfulness, will continue to bear testimony to yourself, to God's glory. This is spiritual consolation. This is comfort for us when we are weary, when we are emotionally drained, when we begin to question whether following the Lord is the right thing to do. These three messages of the angels remind us as believers, to continue to fear and glorify and worship God with our lives. 
and they affirm for us that this world with its dangers and attractions is coming to an end. And we should be aware the pull for the world uh, that the, the pull of the world that makes us want to follow it. We should be aware of that and follow Christ instead. But these messages also encourage us to continue to follow Christ. I'm going to say one more thing. Notice that the first three messages specifically for those who are going to judgment, they're delivered by angelic messengers. I think this is striking. Three messengers delivering those messages. But the last message, specifically for us who know the Lord, is delivered by the Lord himself. This voice from heaven, along with the Holy Spirit, it reminds us that the Lord calls us to be his messengers to take the gospel to the lost. We are, as Paul says, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And you see that in Scripture. God is always choosing a messenger to take the message to the world. But to comfort his own people in such a time as this, the Lord speaks directly to us himself. And we need to take seriously our calling as his messengers. But as we take this message, we can also rest in the fact that God knows us and he loves us and he cares for us and will guide us as we witness for him. This is God's final call. A call for salvation and a warning to those who are perishing and a call for endurance for God's people to hold on to Christ even more in a day such as this. Father.